The following sermon is from New Life Baptist Church, where we exist to see lives transformed by the gospel as we make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at newlifeba.org. Well, last, remember, if you remember last week, what did we start the, ser- the sermon over? We started the sermon over asking the question, who in here wants to live a blessed life? And, and so Don, what, he jumped the gun and he beat everybody to that. So maybe he gets a double portion of the Lord's blessing for that. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but, but we all want to live a blessed life. We want to be blessed by God, don't we? Well, last week we learned that all the spiritual blessings of God are given to us by grace and in Christ. It is in Christ that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. From eternity past to eternity future, we have been blessed by God in Christ. We, we learned last week that in eternity past, God has elected us by his love and by his grace. And next week, we will learn that one day God will bring us into glory by his grace. And so this morning, then we, we are going to study that in between the in between blessing, the present blessing that we receive from God. And that is that we have been given redemption by his grace. Well, we all like a good redemption story, don't we? We like hearing of redemption stories and and the storylines for some of the best movies. They follow that theme of redemption. But in the spirit of Super Bowl Sunday, I I want to begin our time by sharing with you the story of a football player named Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner, he, he was born in Iowa and he played at the University of Northern Iowa. He, well, he had a breakout season his senior year, and he had hopes of playing in the NFL. And so before the NFL season, the Green Bay Packers, they invited him to training camp, but they ended up cutting him, and he didn't make the roster. However, Kurt Warner, he refused to give up on football, and though it seemed that the sport had given up on him. And so in order to pay the bills, though, he was cut. He didn't have a job, and so in order to pay the bills, he took a Jobs stocking groceries at the local grocery store. This NFL potential stocking groceries at the grocery store. But, but then, seemingly out of nowhere, the owner of the Iowa Barnstormers, isn't that a renegade squad, right? The, the owner of the Iowa Barnstormers uh, of the minor league arena football league, it, they, they, he invited Kurt Warner to play for his team. And so though this time playing with the, in the Arena Football League, it was trying for Kurt Warner and his wife, eventually he got his big break and he signed with the St. Louis Rams, now the L.A. Rams. And so the, the way the story plays out, it's a classic one, a classic story of redemption. The starter for the Rams at the time, Trent Green, he got injured in preseason play And so Kurt Warner takes over the reins as the starting quarterback for the St. Louis Rams. And and during their football season, the Rams become this offensive juggernaut, and they end up playing in and winning the 2000 Super Bowl 
against the Tennessee Titans. And so just to top it all off, as if that wasn't enough for Kurt Warner, he received the MVP of the league and of the Super Bowl during that season. And so from bagging groceries to winning a Super Bowl MVP, we all love a redemption story, don't we? But, but oftentimes, the way we culturally understand redemption is when a person overcomes a negative situation in their life. Sometimes that negative situation, it's a moral failing. Sometimes it's just bad luck. Sometimes it's a relational problem that they face. But oftentimes, this story of redemption, how we culturally accept and receive that, is when someone overcomes the situation themselves. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the theme and the story of redemption found in the Bible. However, this storyline, it doesn't center upon how we are able to redeem ourselves, but rather how Christ alone has redeemed us from our situation. This morning, go ahead and turn with me if you have your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, and we will spend our time. This sermon, it's, it's a little bit of a part one. Next week will be a part two. So this sermon won't be as application heavy, but come back for next week and you'll receive all application you've ever wanted uh, from this great doctrine. But this morning we are going to focus on the great doctrines of the gospel. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, and if you are turned to Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, I would invite you to turn, look at it with me and let's read our text. It says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Uh-oh, we got a dead battery. That's all right. We'll try that in. There we go. I don't have to yell now. All right, let's, let's try that again. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So, Father, we we pray now that this truth of your redemption that's given to us in your son and through his blood, that the truth of the gospel would come alive for us this morning, that that maybe for some of us, we would be awakened to this great truth for the very first time. And for others of us, that, that we would endeavor and we would commit to make the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ the centerpiece and the focal piece of our entire lives and our entire being. I pray that you would come now, Holy Spirit, and work through your word, as it is preached. We pray all this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we continue, I think it's helpful for us to define this morning. What is redemption mean? What is redemption according to the Bible? Well, redemption, it means I'm going to give you kind of a longer version and then I'll give you the short version afterward. Redemption, it means to secure the release or the recovery, either freed from or bought back the release or the recovery of someone or something by the payment of a price. Or or to put it another way, redemption means to purchase back someone or something from its present situation. 
In this idea of redemption, it often involves the theme of deliverance as well. Well, one of the greatest pictures of redemption found in the entire Bible and the greatest in the Old Testament, it's the story of the Exodus. You remember that uh, that for 430 years, Israel was enslaved in the land of Egypt. Exodus 1, it says that the kings of Egypt set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens and that they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. But then a chapter later in Exodus chapter 2, it says that Israel's cry for rescue from slavery came to God and that God heard their groaning. And he later promised his people saying, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so after the Lord promises this to Israel, he then sends a deliverer to free the people of Israel from their captivity. And who's that? Moses, right? And as many of you are well familiar with this story, Moses and his brother Aaron, they go before Pharaoh multiple times and speak on behalf of God to Pharaoh saying, let my people go. Well, because Pharaoh refused God sent many plagues to afflict the land of Egypt. And it was through the final plague, right? The killing of the firstborn that Pharaoh ultimately relents and and he frees the people from their slavery. And and so Israel flees the land of Egypt. However, after a little time had passed, Pharaoh gets a little buyer's remorse. He has a change of heart. And so he readies his chariots and all the king's horses and all the king's men begin pursuing the Israelites. Eventually, they corner the people of Israel and Israel's backs are literally up against the wall of the Red Sea. And so you have the Egyptian army in front, the Red Sea behind, and defenseless in the middle is Israel with nowhere to go. And in this moment, Moses says to the people of Israel, the people who are encountering great fear, panic, and turmoil, Moses says this. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And then the miraculous happens. The Lord tells Moses to lift up his staff and stretch out his hands and and God works through Moses to divide the Red Sea. And, And so as God works through Moses, To part the Red Sea with a strong gust of wind, the people of Israel cross over on dry ground without a drop of water touching their heads. And and though the Egyptian army and chariots were in full pursuit after the last of the Israelite had crossed over safely, God told Moses to once again stretch out his hands. And when Moses did that, the sea returned to its normal levels, drowning the chariots and horsemen and the entire Egyptian army. Exodus 14, verse 28, it says this, Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The Lord had redeemed the people of Israel from their bondage to slavery and had delivered them from the rule 
of Egypt. And on that day, Israel experienced the great salvation from God, how he redeemed them from their slavery, and how he delivered them through the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, now this, I thought you're, you might be thinking this morning, I thought our text was Ephesians, not Exodus. But listen, the Exodus from Egypt and, in, and uh, from Egypt and into the eventual promised land, it was central to Israel's identity. The, the Old Testament, is satu- it was saturated with remembrance and rejoicing in this great salvation event of the Exodus. Israel's theology was shaped by the Exodus. And many of the commands found in the law, the caring for the foreigners, the kinsman redeemer rule, and others, they were based upon this redeeming work of God in Exodus. And yet, and yet, as great as this story of redemption of God's people for Egypt is, it serves as a greater purpose, as it points us today to an even greater story of redemption accomplished by God for his people. Listen, church, this morning we have redemption, not because we have been released from a bondage of slavery to Egypt, but even more, we have been released and we have been freed from our bondage of slavery to sin. We have redemption not because Israel, Egypt's firstborn sons were killed, but because God's eternal son was sacrificed on the cross in our place. We have redemption not because Moses stretched out his hands over the Red Sea, but because the greater deliverer, the greater prophet, Jesus Christ, he stretched out his hands on the cross. We have redemption not because Egypt's chariots and horsemen were cast into the sea, but because all of our sin has been cast into the bottom of the sea and are remembered by God no more. We have redemption, not to live in the promised land of Canaan that flows with milk and honey, but even more to live in the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth, a place that will far exceed the perfections of Eden as far as the eye can see. We have redemption, not in Moses's victory, but in Christ's victory that he won for us on the cross. Listen, the whole point of the Exodus story in the Old Testament, it's to lay the foundation and to prepare God's people to believe in and to receive a greater redemption that has been accomplished for us, as our text says, in him. Israel's exodus from their slavery to Egypt, it's meant to point us to the greater exodus that occurred 2,000 years later, namely our own exodus from sin's captivity that King Jesus accomplished for us. In Christ, we have been purchased back and delivered. We have been redeemed from the bondage and the condemnation of our sin. And so listen, church, just as the redeeming work of the Exodus was the focal point for Israel, and just as it helped to find their identity, it helped to shape their theology, and it helped to inform their obedience, how much more then should the cross of Jesus Christ be central for us today? And so may the cross, the redemption that he accomplished for us, may it be the central focus of our identity. May it shape every aspect of our theology And may it inform how we live in obedience to God. May we be a people marked by, shaped by, and motivated by the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Or, or as Paul would say in Galatians 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May the cross be our boast. May it be our center and may it be our all. It is in Christ and in him alone that we have redemption. It is in Christ alone that we have been delivered from our bondage to sin to in our condemnation of sin. And, and, and so while Paul uses the backdrop of the Exodus story for this analogy, he also builds upon the cultural practice of redemption during that day, during the ancient Roman time. And so during this time, the, the practice of slavery, it was extremely common. In fact, as many as one out of every two person, people, persons who lived within the Roman world were slaves. People became slaves for various reasons. Some people, they couldn't pay off their debts. And so they were sold into slavery until they could work it off and repay their debts. And, and so while individuals, obviously, they were sold into slavery at times, If the debt was so great, entire families would be sold into slavery as well. Other times, soldiers from conquered armies would be sold into slavery to help recoup the cost of war. And so I say that all to say slavery was commonplace within the Roman world. And so the only way for a slave to receive their freedom was either to repay all of their debts or Someone else had to redeem them, to purchase them, to purchase their freedom at their own expense. And so just imagine with me a little bit this morning. Imagine with me the experience, what it would have felt to be redeemed. Imagine you owed a debt you could not pay. And so you were effectively sentenced to a lifetime of bondage without any hope of freedom whatsoever. And you wake up day after day after day with the reality that it's just another day of slavery that has begun for you. But then you wake up one morning to the glorious news that a kind benefactor has purchased your redemption. You have been set free from your bondage of slavery. And so imagine with me the inexpressible joy that would flood your heart, right? And though now freed of all of your debts, no doubt you joyfully and voluntarily have now become indebted to the one who has purchased your freedom. Listen, if you are in Christ, this is what has happened for you. Every single one of us has been born into the bondage and the slavery of sin. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice, willingly submitting to and obeying our sin master. And so as a result, the burden of our sin debt against God, it doesn't lessen day by day, but it in in fact increases day by day. Some of you, if you are up on some financial terminology, some of you may know the term debt to equity ratio. For those of you who don't, don't worry. I'll give you the snippet. It's a ratio used to evaluate a company's financial leverage, right? So how much are they leveraged in debt? 
in, in this ratio is calculated by dividing a company's total liabilities divided by the shareholders' equity, the, the, uh, the return on, or the, the net income, you could say. Uh, so a low debt-to-equity ratio, it means that a company, it's a li- little less risky investment because most likely they are able to service their debt. While a high debt-to-equity ratio means that a company poses a risky investment. You wouldn't want to invest in a company with a high debt-to-equity ratio because they stand at a greater chance of defaulting on their debt. Well, listen, brothers and sisters, you and I's, our debt-to-equity ratio, it wouldn't even register on the spectrum because we are all debt and no equity before the God of the universe. We are a people saddled with our sin debt without any hope of spiritual freedom. And so I know sometimes we are prone maybe to read a verse like this and nonchalantly, right, affirm and say, yeah, I believe that to be true. But when the apostle Paul uses this analogy of redemption, we should picture ourselves as that slave without any hope whatsoever of freedom. And yet wonders of wonders and grace upon grace. God has looked upon us in our sin debt situation. And in love, he chose to pay the price himself for our redemption. But the only problem, the wages of our sin is what? It's death. And so the only acceptable price for our redemption to cancel out our sin debt would have to be an in-kind payment from someone who, has, who is free of any debts themselves. And so in the greatest act of love ever known, the eternal Son of God voluntarily became a human being, lived a perfectly sinless life so that he could pay the price for our redemption. How did he pay the price for our redemption? Well, look at our text this morning. What does it say? In him we have redemption through his blood. And so first we talk about redemption. We talked about redemption. Now this brings us to our second word this morning, atonement. We have redemption through his blood. So so just like redemption, the need and the theme for atonement and sacrifice, it runs all throughout Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It it begins with God providing the first atonement for sin by, by killing an animal in order to clothe Adam and Eve after their sin. The death of an animal was the price God paid to cover the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. Fast forward with me a little bit back to that Exodus story once more. And and so on the night that God would enact the final plague of Egypt, it was the, the killing of the firstborn in all of the land of Egypt. God told the people of Israel that the only way for their firstborn sons to be spared was for them to 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 offer a sacrifice, a perfect lamb without any blemish. And then to what? To cover the doorposts of their houses with the blood of the lamb. In Exodus 12, the Lord says to Israel, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
In other words, the only way to be spared and to escape God's wrath and his judgment was to be covered by the blood of the lamb. So before I continue this morning, I just want to ask every single one of you, are you covered by the blood of the lamb? The only way, listen, the only way to escape and to be spared of God's righteous wrath and his just punishment for sin is through the blood of the lamb. Now, now this idea of, of, of an atoning sacrifice, it, it was formalized after Israel uh, uh, had the exodus, after they were brought into the promised land. It, it was it culminated and it was brought to a climax in the Old Testament with the institution of the Day of Atonement for Israel. And so if you have read through the book of Leviticus, you've heard about this Day of Atonement. And it was on this day that the high priest, he would enter into the tent along with a male goat. And he would bring along him also along with him a ram. And there he would make atoning sacrifices. He would use the, the, the goat first for himself and his family. And then he would take the ram and he would sacrifice that for the entire sins of Israel. And then after he did that, the high priest would enter into the holy place and he would take the blood of this ram and he would sprinkle it all over the holy place on the mercy seat, symbolically cleansing it from the sins of Israel. And this, and so then after doing this, the high priest, he would lay both of his hands on another live male goat. He would have a goat. He would put both of his hands on this male goat and then he would confess the sins of the iniquities, the trespasses of Israel onto this goat. And after doing so, he would send this goat away into the wilderness. And this male goat would then symbolically carry with him the sins of Israel outside the camp. And if you're wondering, this is where we get the word scapegoat today. And so this day of atonement, Yom Kippur, it was theologically significant in three primary ways. First, the sacrificial lamb died in the place of Israel, right? Israel deserved to die for their sins, but this lamb was substituted in Israel's place and thus provided atonement for Israel's sin. It paid the price for Israel. Secondly, the sacrificial lamb's blood was sprinkled all throughout the tabernacle, symbolically cleansing Israel in the tent of all of its sin and defilement. So we have substitutionary atonement. We have purification of sin. And then thirdly, the third theological significance of this day of atonement, the scapegoat symbolically removed the sins of Israel. As, sin, as Israel's sins were symbolically imputed, that's just a big fancy word for meaning placed upon, the, the, the sins of Israel were placed upon this scapegoat so that God's judgment, this is key, when the sins were placed upon this scapegoat, God's judgment fell upon this goat so that God's forgiveness could fall upon the people of Israel. And so we have three key theological symbols, substitutionary atonement, purification of sins and imputation, the placing of sin on another. And so I hope, I hope you're cluing in a little bit with where I'm about to go next. And listen, church, this is why we should read our entire Bibles. This is why we don't skip through the book of Leviticus when we do our reading. 
And this is why when we do read through the Old Testament, we ask these questions. How does this passage ultimately point me to Christ? How how does this passage point me to the gospel and to the new covenant that Jesus would bring? We, We are to read our Bibles. We are to read through our Bibles and see how all of our Bibles point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so soon after Jesus began his earthly ministry, he passed by the prophet John the Baptist. And as Jesus was coming toward him, John the Baptist said this. He said, behold, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The entire purpose for Jesus's life, his birth, his life, his ministry, it was the cross where he would be sacrificed in our place as the perfect spotless lamb of God without blemish for our redemption. Except this church, except Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that that ultimate day of atonement, it it differed significantly from the other day of atonement in one way. While while the high priest of the Old Testament performed all of these functions on the day of atonement as a symbolic act, listen, there was no symbolism taking place on the cross. On the cross, Jesus became both our high priest and the sacrificial lamb. And he made the true and the final and the full atonement for our sins. And on the cross, our sins were actually imputed, placed upon this spotless lamb. And his perfect righteousness was imputed, placed upon us. And and though the, the high priest symbolically cleansed the tabernacle by sprinkling the blood of the lamb, Jesus's blood, it is actually powerful enough to cleanse us and to remove even the darkest stains of sin from our hearts and to purify us from all unrighteousness. There wasn't any symbolism taking place on the cross. Jesus fulfilled what all the symbolic acts of the Day of Atonement pointed to. In the last word, if you remember, the last word uttered from Jesus' lips on the cross before he died was what? To tell us, die, right? It is finished. In, in ancient times, when a, a promissory note, you might think an IOU note, right? When a promissory note was paid, the one holding that note, he wrote this across the top of it. When it was paid off, he wrote, to Telestai. And indeed, it wasn't properly effective until it was dated and signed. And then when this was done, the clerk, he would also write that one word across the promissory note, to Telestai. This word, to Telestai, it was written on the certificate of debt, and it signified that this debt was now paid in full. And so when Christ gave himself for us on the cross, he fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law and he atoned for the price of our sin. And so as a result, listen, church, written across our certificates of our sin debt is the final word from the cross to tell It has been paid in full. The, the Old Testament sacrifices, they could never, they could cover our sin, but they could never actually take our sins away. But on the cross, Jesus accomplished what all of the Old Covenant sacrifices could not do. And that he actually paid the price for our sin. 
Someone, someone once said, in eternity, the son gave the father a promissory note that he would pay the price for humanity's redemption. We, we, what we, that's what we talked about last week. And then on Calvary, Jesus wrote across the top of that note to tell us die, paid in full. Wayne Grudem, he, he, he's a, a theologian. He said this, that if Christ had not paid the full penalty, there would still be condemnation left for us. But since he has paid the full penalty that is due to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, brothers and sisters, if you have sinned against God and you find it difficult to believe and to receive the Father's full forgiveness, then I want to encourage you this morning to let your mind continually meditate and think upon this one word, to tetelestai. It has been paid in full on the cross. If you are in Christ, then all of your sin debt, all of it has been paid in full. The price of your redemption has been paid. The terms of your forgiveness have been secured. No more debt remains to tell us die. Charles Spurgeon, and you get two, two quotes back to back uh, weeks. Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, the general religion of mankind is due. But the religion of a true Christian is done. It is finished, is the believer's conquering word. Incarnate love has fulfilled his self-imposed task. Jesus, as the substitute for sinners, he was condemned to die. And he died that he might finish the work of our redemption. Your sins have sustained their death blow. And the robe of your righteousness has received its last thread. It is done. Complete. Perfect. Listen, and all because Jesus, he is our substitutionary atonement. He took our place on the cross and he made payment for our sins through the shedding of his own precious blood. It is only in him and through his bloodshed that we have redemption. Christ alone is our Passover lamb paying the price for our sin, and he alone is our atoning sacrifice, enduring God's wrath in our place. He alone can wash our sinful garments white as snow, and he alone has become our great scapegoat as our sins were placed upon him and his righteousness placed upon us. He has carried our sins as far as the east is from the west. Jesus came to this earth not merely to be our great example. No, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, Jesus paid the sin debt, and repetition breeds remembrance. And so I'm intentionally repeating myself, church. Jesus paid the sin debt he didn't owe, and he gave us the righteousness we could not earn. There are many in our world today who have a general belief and faith in God. Maybe it's because they follow a certain certain monotheistic religion, right? They believe in one God. It, it, billions of Muslims, millions of Jews, Mormons, and others would fall into this category. They have a faith in God. For others, you, you, they, they may not be particularly religious, but maybe they've had a moment in their life when God has spared them. And so as a result, they possess this general faith in God. I, I believe God is real because he was real to me. 
And so maybe one of these two situations, maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you possess a general faith in God. But listen, friend, the Bible is very clear that a general faith in God is no saving faith at all. It is only, only, only through faith in Jesus Christ and in his atoning work on the cross that saves us. It is only in him and through his blood that we have redemption. And so I just want to ask you this morning, what kind of faith do you possess? A general faith in God that doesn't save or a saving faith in the work of Christ? I invite you today, if you would say, you know what, I've I believed in God my whole life, but I have not put my faith and my trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. I invite you today, come to Jesus Christ and receive the redemption and the forgiveness that he freely offers to you through his cross. Today, that word, tetelestai, it can be written over the top of your sin debt certificate and you can be forgiven, as our text says, of all your trespasses. We have received forgiveness for all of our trespasses, full and free through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. And our text says that all of this is according to the riches of his grace. The God of grace is boundless and his arm of grace is able to reach even the worst of sinners. Listen, there is no greater and more lavish gift that God could ever give you than the gospel of his son. One commentator, he shared this analogy. He said, if you were to go to a multimillionaire and ask him to contribute to a worthy ministry, and and if he gave you a check of $25, he would only be giving out of his riches. But if instead he gave you a check for $50,000, and if that's any of you this morning, we would gladly take that check this morning. But if, if, if he wrote a check for $50,000, it wouldn't be out of his riches, but it would be according to his riches, in proportion with his riches. Listen, our Heavenly Father, he doesn't just give us enough saving grace for the day. We are, we are not subsistent Christians. No, his grace is infinite, and he lavishes his grace without limit upon those who trust in his son for salvation. But listen, while God's grace for us is free, it wasn't cheap. It it was costly to God, for it cost him nothing less than the death of the son of God on the cross for, listen church, your redemption. The grace of God, full and free. The grace of God, a sinner's only plea. That he, through his death on the tree, would purchase grace for a wretch like me. Listen, church, may we never tire of studying and speaking and singing the lavish, limitless, infinite grace of our God. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace.
Let's pray. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, please connect with us at newlifeba.org.